Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, Rishi Sunak's image screams technocratic dweeb, but do his beliefs mark him out as further to the right than Johnson or Truss? Plus, the Labour top brass doesn't seem open to Sadiq Khan's call for rent controls in the capital, but he hopes that a U-U-turn might be in the offing. Is the policy the answer to Generation Rent's prayers, or are Labour right to fear the unintended consequences? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Margaret Thatcher cooking apron, anyone? No. With conference season and its accompanying tat almost upon us, we look at the best and worst political merchandise. Let's meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist for the iPaper. Hi, Hannah. Hi. You would have been delighted to hear that Nick Timothy, co-author of the Tories' uh, 2017 manifesto, one of the architects of the hostile environment and general bad take-haver on the internet, has been selected as the candidate to replace Matt Hancock in West Suffolk. Happy news. (laughs) It's a real frying pan fire situation for West Suffolk. Is this another case of failing upwards, or does Nick have very well-hidden strengths? Well, he didn't really go away. This is the thing. He lost May the 2017 general election by pushing her into a snap election, which was a bad idea. But then since then, he's been a bit of a shady backroom operator. He's been consulting for the Department for Education and then for the Home Office, where he's doing a big review into its effectiveness, which is ironic, considering, as you said, he was part of the hostile environment um, creative team in the first place. So I personally would rather that his career is exposed to the light, that he stands and that we can follow everything he's doing clearly and we know what he is, you know, what he's pushing for, what his job is and that it's publicly accountable. So, um, yeah, not great for the people of West Suffolk, but uh, probably better to have him out in the open. So is this your general policy then that right-wing wrongans should at least be uh, standing for Parliament and have to do all of the kind of, you know, all the kind of the, the drudge work rather than just like flitting from think tank to think tank. Yes, definitely. There's so many people in think tanks that the general public would never have heard of. Uh, I mean, Nick Timothy, I think most voters don't know who he is, but he's had yeah. significant influence and made some terrible decisions for <laughs> people who have the power. So, yeah, let's see him actually try and do it and mm-hmm. uh, and you know that seat is conservative through and through it was conservative in 97 so it's still going to be conservative he will win that seat mm. um so yeah let's see what he gets up to sorry west sussex <laughs> also joining us is times reporter jerry scott hi jerry hello um so we've got another by-election coming up isn't it exciting this one they're all exciting this one's in Rutherglen and Hamilton West after the SNP's Margaret Ferrier was recalled for breaking COVID rules back in 2020. I don't think she's essentially done any MPing since 2020 as a result of this. Is this a chance for Labour to prove that it's back, back, back in, in Scotland? She led Labour by 10 percentage points in 2019, but it's, you know, a lot has changed. Yeah, well, look, let's not judge any MPs for not doing any MPing. There are plenty of current <laughs> MPs who aren't doing much MPing. Nadine uh, Dorries. Um, but... Look, I think what's what I got sent to all of the by-elections that we've just seen um, for colour pieces for the Times, and uh, hopefully I'm not going to be sent to Scotland, not because I don't love Scotland, but because I do need some sleep at some point. Um, but I, I think what is interesting about the slew of by-elections we've just had, and then again this one, is that Starmer needs to be able to prove that he can win in a variety of seats, mm. right? So whether that's um, Uxbridge, which obviously I didn't win, but did make uh, inroads in as kind of an outer London seat, whether it's, you know, the more blue wallish and then Scotland, he needs to be able to prove that he can form an electoral coalition across a vast number of seats if he's going to have a strong majority. And look, I think Scottish Labour hasn't been in the best place for a few years, kind of insiders have said, 
about the organisation not being brilliant. So I think they'll probably need quite a lot of support from the centre. But you're completely right that essentially they need to be able to prove that they can win in these seats um, ahead of any general election next year. And the SNP hasn't had the greatest year. <laughs> you can put that, you say that again, can't you? Um, no. And I think what they're suffering from at the moment is even if you take all the allegations out of the picture, which you can't do in, in the round, but even if you could, um, you know, Hamza Yousaf isn't getting the name recognition that maybe, you know, Alex Hammond, Nicholas Sturgeon would have done when they were popular. And I think they're really going to struggle with that. What will be interesting to see is how strongly that independence kind of push, that independence campaigning will have an impact because, you know, it's still around the most recent polling half of people in Scotland who would back independence. Um, but how that plays in a by-election, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. Our guest this week is popular with Rishi Sunak because his name is an anagram for Doug Moore Oil. He's the head of news and politics at Joe Media and the host of the show Pubcast. Um, and you've already guessed that it's Ollie Dugmore. Hello. Welcome back. Cheers, Doreen. How are you? Uh, good. You were uh, with us or not with us uh, back in lockdown. Mm. And now you're here in a physical sense. It's nice to be this close to everyone. <laughs> Um, on Tuesday night, Donald Trump was indicted on four counts for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election result leading up to January the 6th. Um, but the BBC, it was quite a chilling sentence from the BBC. Mr. Trump, who now faces 78 criminal counts overall in three different cases, is currently the frontrunner in the Republican Party's contest to pick its next presidential candidate. Are the Republicans just in the election overturning business now? Yeah. I'd say they were. I, if you want to look at the sort of most prominent politicians, go to Congress, look at the Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Um, he's denied that Joe Biden won the election. The majority uh, leader there, uh, Steve Scalise, he also has denied it. So senior politicians, yeah, they're, they're in the election overturning business. Then Republican voters. I think the most recent polling puts it, it's more than a majority. I think it's about 60%. Numbers are coming down as time progresses, but still it's a majority of them. And again, if you look at the American population as a whole, it's about a third believe that the election was won fraudulently. So I think you can say quite unequivocally, uh, yeah, it is in the election overturning business. And also his his um, opponents are terrible. And there was some sort of, there was some excitement, wasn't there, around the midterms about Ron DeSantis. I mean, he was awful in his own special way, but he's also awful and unpopular. Like he's just... Mm. It's unbelievable how bad he is at this. It's quite surprising that they haven't found a viable candidate that isn't Donald Trump. You know, his 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 shadow extends well well past 2020. He's left an indelible mark on American politics. There's no doubt about that. Still the second most popular, if you're talking raw votes, American presidential candidate ever, you know, second to Joe Biden. But still, there's no one else who's got close to him in that, in that level of turnout. So who's coming next? I don't think there's anyone that can challenge him, certainly that I'm aware of in the Republican Party right now. Yeah, well, it just goes to show that you can, the American dream means that you can uh, do many, many, many crimes and uh, <laughs> still become president. Serve uh, from the rectangle office, yeah, in, in prison. <laughs> During last summer's Tory leadership contest, uh, Rishi Sunak managed to come across as the semi-reasonable one sandwiched between Thatcherite headbanger Liz Truss and Walking Telegraph column Kemi Bagnock. 
The consensus then was that he'd been forced into putting Sado Nightmare Suella Braverman in the Home Office. But some commentators <laughs> have been saying for a while that he's far more right-wing than he appears. A social conservative, a hardline Brexiter, and a Nigel Lawson superfan. Uh, the Economist recently called him the most right-wing conservative leader of his generation and the most right-wing PM since Thatcher. Yet, it adds, neither voters nor his colleagues seem to have noticed. Now, Jerry, as a journalist, you know that, of course, it's a great tech tactic to say that nobody else has noticed the thing that you're writing in your column. Um, <laughs> how, how true is it that, that pundits have misread his, his true nature, at least, you know, when he was, uh, when he was running for leader? I think it is true to an extent, but I think you have to, you do have to look at the context, right? And you mentioned it a bit there, that he was more moderate than Truss, but, you know, the the, the Everton window has moved in such a direction that we're now all um, operating in a completely different sphere than we used to. I think some of this is also the image that Rishi Sunak has created for himself, his, you know, flashy adverts, putting his own signature on things, the swish photos in his slimline grey hoodie that makes him look a bit like a tech bro, his expensive coffee cups, his love of Peloton. You can't say that he hasn't done well at building an image. But what lies behind that is arguably very different. And I think if you take some of his positions on cultural issues. Very recently, you can see that he's not worried about getting dragged into the culture wars. He has previously said, you know, I don't want to do that. I'm above that. But actually, in the steps that he's taking, you can see that that he is happy. If you look at the um, trans guidance for schools, for example, that has been delayed, um, the, the chat is, is that that's been pushed back again because Gillian Keegan, the education secretary, is too soft for Rishi Sunak's liking. So, you know, there are really key issues where you see that he is potentially more right-wing than people might have first expected. I think he's also in a bit of a tricky position, and this isn't me giving him sympathy, but the reality of it, where he's got a party that is like wildly divided, right? So he's always trying to play to be a man of all things for all people, which does kind of mean that you never really know who he is. And for a prime minister who is trying to trade on so much authenticity, that's not necessarily a good place to be in. So I want to unpack a bit why the, the optics have been so misleading, because weirdly in that leadership race, he came off as the Remainer to trust his lever, even though they voted in the opposite way in 2016. So one thing I thought may be the, the very popular furlough scheme, which he personally hated, but he was responsible for. So was that like where a lot of people... Um, I suppose I'm here talking about voters rather than commentators, where a lot of people actually kind of first saw him and thought, oh, he just seems like a guy who's quite happy to give people money when they're, when they're in need. And that, that sort of helped set up this fallacy. Yeah, that's right. And look, so I um, actually used to work for the East Daily Press uh, in Norfolk um, many, many years ago. Liz Truss is, of course, a Norfolk MP. And I remember going out during the referendum and seeing her on those Remain stands in, you know, Kings Lynn Town Centre, mm. the glamorous life of a local journalist, I know. Um, so I distinctly remember that. But doesn't it quite say something about how you can, like, revise history in politics that she was able to then set herself up as, you know, this this arch leave figure? Um, but it, it, it also, as we've just said works in the opposite way that your opponents can paint you quite easily as something that might not be so politically uh, advantageous in the future. I think for, for Rishi Sunak, 
you are right that his first introduction to the public as such was during the pandemic. And he stood at that podium and made a good impression. But political reality then often hits, right? You can't forever be the bloke that's giving away cash. Um, and I think that's part of what we're seeing now, as as well as him being the one that's actually in charge now. You know, there was stories upon stories of the fact that him and Boris Johnson didn't always get on, that they were butting heads over things. But actually now, when, in, when it's him with his hands on the lever and making decisions and being responsible for everything, people are quite reasonably going to go, oh... No, thanks. I mean, it's quite interesting. There was some uh, research from the Think Tank Onward a few weeks ago about his popularity with millennials and how actually with millennials, he is still quite popular. I mean, look, all of this is relative. The Tories doing horribly in the in yeah, the yeah. ratings, obviously. We're talking from a very low bar. But he's still pretty popular. Um, but, you know, how long that can remain is to be seen. But it's it's it's, it's not easy. Is this because he sort of projects the vibe of somebody that's sort of got like who's sort of set up with his university mate a kind of company that makes like wackily marketed vegan burgers he's a tech bro right but, i mean just, that's that's the image he gives off it's kind of like he's very it's very like hey guys like youth must surely play into this quite a lot yeah and you've got if you listen to him in interviews it's fascinating um because his kind of way of speaking is very kind of you know californian obviously he did spend a lot of time in america and i i do think that as as with um, uh, a lot of men of a certain age, no offence to any listeners, uh, they maybe think they're a bit cooler than they actually are. <laughs> um, but uh, he's like I was saying, he does he's done a lot on his image to kind of work with that and try and look like he may be, you know, one of the gang, someone you might find in a trendy coffee shop. Um, but that's not exactly where his politics may be. And of course, uh, we've now found out that loads of uh, tech bros are actually wildly right wing. So I don't know why that was ever an association with being being liberal. Um, so Ollie, Sunak's trick seems to be, he sort of comes across as fantastically sort of insincere and, and sort of glib and, and slick. But is, is he a secretly a conviction politician who, who really does actually want to do all the things that he's he's doing? And he benefits from perhaps the misapprehension that he, he sort of has to do some of this stuff to keep the you know the nutter backbenchers on side yeah i think so yeah i you know i think he i don't think he's being forced to do any of this stuff against his will i think in terms of the conservative party he's largely unimpeachable at this point because they're not going to put themselves through another leadership election before the next general election it ju- i mean it would just be insane two two already is probably enough um so i think you you sort of when someone shows you who they are, believe them. You know, I think I think the policies that he's pursuing are either because he a thinks they are to the benefit of the country, um, you know, reducing inflation. I think you have to struggle to argue that that wasn't to our benefit, or um, in efforts to win the next general election. So maybe you could lump small boats into that as well. But I think that's that's connected to the fact that he is actually, yeah, as we've been discussing, uh, an incredibly right wing bloke. Um, Jessica Elgott for The Guardian wrote a good piece back in April um, talking about this idea that, oh, he's having his arm twisted. Um, And then she went, far from being convenient, red meat to the Tory members in the leadership election. His views on social issues such as gender, drugs, crime and migration are deeply conservative. How much do we know about his cultural values or even his background? I mean, are there things that we should have known or are we learning as 
for example, he decides, you know, he adopts certain causes and seems mm. very passionate about things that maybe you didn't expect. Him to. I don't necessarily think maybe things that we should have known. The thing about Rishi Sunak is that he'd already occupied one of the four great offices of state and national crisis, very interventionist, paying 80% of the wages, you know, with the support of the TUC and other trade unions. Um, <laughs> he then obviously gets out of that and his policy programme is surprisingly different to that. Um, but I remember I, the Jess Elgott piece, you know, when it came out, I was really impressed by it. And there was another one during the Liz Truss, Richard Sunak leadership election, um, shot, written by Jan Anganesh and shock, it was incredibly good. And it talks about the politics of vibes. It was mm. for all the things that we've discussed already. For if you actually look at the evidence, Rishi Sunak committed Brexit, the only sincere Brexiteer prime minister we've had since the referendum, actually, yeah. um, a city bro. And again, I'll shock you that the city is not a den of communism. Uh, I thought it was all woke now. <laughs> yeah, I it is. It was yeah, all woke. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Woke, woke traders, woke hedge funds. Um, <laughs> um, and you stack up Liz Truss's background, and actually, but because Rishi is young, um, he's from an ethnic minority. I think the sort of the vibe within Britain is, oh, so he must be politically liberal. But hmm. in actual fact, his politics are far, they're far, they're, they're really to the right. And the Elgot piece documents it. You know, banning laughing gas, the stuff on trans rights. Um, his migration act is far more punitive than you know. It's to the point where Theresa May is complaining about it, the creator of the hostile environment. So yeah, I, th I think he. He is incredibly right wing. Liz Truss, remember, started out as a as a free the weed mm, live dem. Too right. <laughs> Liz Truss, four twenty blazer, yeah. Um, one thing he seems very dishonest about um, is the environment. And um, a colleague, Alexandre, dug up an interview during the leadership contest where he earnestly said that his young daughters asked him all the time what he would do about the environment. Um, I would have got an awkward conversation now. Um, his answer appears to be "fuck it." Um, <laughs> is is this? Is this anti-Labour in this sort of post-Uxbridge um, strategy way or or anti-planet? Is it is it just that, you know, I just wonder how much is sort of political strategy um, mm. and how much is like, as Zach Goldsmith uh, suggested, he couldn't care less. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think it's probably a slightly excessive to suggest that Rishi Sunak is burning the planet simply to own the libs. I think that's pretty, quite, quite an extreme, yeah. um, quite an extreme policy position to take. To own his kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But equally, you know, I think you're you're talking about a gold medal in mental gymnastics if you think that burning more fossil fuels is going to help us reduce climate change and reduce global warming. Um, yes, I, I I take your point though. It's a wedge, it's a wedge issue as as Labour moves further to the right. They're squeezing the Tories and the Tories obviously have to, they're going to move further away from the centre as a result. So things like um, North Sea oil and gas or trans rights, actually in a lot of these cases, the Labour Party is squeezing their space on this and they're finding, having to find points of difference and wedge issues so that voters can see the see the difference between the two of them. Um, Anna, just as, as Rishi Sunak benefited from standing next to Truss or, or Bednock, is Braverman's real value to Sunak is that she makes him look nicer? I mean, because she could stand next to anybody, <laughs> alive or dead, and make them look nicer. Uh, so maybe that maybe that that was the idea that you basically you just need like a hard nut, and so you just look like you're just like what can I what can I do? She's just crazy on this stuff. So I think it's not just about the policies; it's about the presentation. You know, the vibes as we've been talking about comes back to those optics. So Sunak channels the whole Blairite thing really well. He starts his sentences with look and all of that. And, um, uh, you know, he's the, he comes across as the reasonable bloke in a suit. 
the kind of the centrist, even though he's not ideologically. Um, and Braverman's not like that. She's very honest about who she is. She stands up and she says, you know, says it like it is and all of that. The, the stuff that the real Tory heartland love, that, you know, talking truth to these um, to these youngsters who are their avocado and toast and all of that. They absolutely love that. So it makes him look more reasonable next to her in that way, even though, as you say, they share an ideology. They share a view about, especially about immigration, um, about how we deal with migrants and small boats. Um, so I don't think it makes it, him look nicer, but I think it makes him look calm, which is not um, a useless thing. Well, in, in, when you're standing general election. Well, another point people made, I suppose, on this sort of vibes thing, I think maybe this was in The Economist piece, was saying that the fact that he was competent, he appeared competent, was confused with centrism. Now, yeah, that, I mean, I that's would, in I mean you can, of course, a... be an incompetent centrist. Of course. Um, but it, but those two things have got nothing to do with, to do with each, each no, other. No, but they have been lumped together in people's minds because of this idea, which I actually am really obsessed with about pragmatism, because pragmatism is largely lost from politics at the moment. And I'm on a bit of a personal cruise. I'm, I get written off as a terrible centrist mum all the time on Twitter. I'm kind of OK with that because I do think pragmatism's lost. And uh, and what we end up with is, you know, often, bluntly, you know, blokes shouting at each other. And he doesn't come across like that, even though he holds exactly the same views as some of the most radical right-wing aggressors on social media and so on. So, yeah, it is confused. They're not the same thing, but there's something about that that calmness, that suit wearing and the, the look. <laughs> look, if we just all sit down and speak a little bit more like we're on Newsnight, maybe we can come to a consensus. That I mean, that's that's what he's doing. It works. I mean, yeah. I, you know, is that's that the, why he does it. Because that it thing that, you know, people go, well, you can't be an authoritarian unless you're doing the, you know, unless you sound a bit Nuremberg, you know, mm. the authoritarians shout a lot. Absolutely and it's like all an authoritarian true, yeah. has to do is come along and seem quite reasonable, but do yeah. the same thing. But things. the thing is, it helps... Sunak right now that Trump is standing again in the US and that we've had the whole thing with Bolsonaro in Brazil because it makes it look like he, he he's so different from them just because of the way he addresses the people. Do you think that maybe we're quite, you know, there, there is a problem in the way that we talk about left, right, centre, you know, I mean, there are multiple axes left and right. So like Truss was very, very conservative economically. Not, I mean, she wouldn't, I wouldn't say she was like extremely progressive socially, but that didn't seem to be her main, she didn't no, seem like really socially economy, right wing. Yeah. She didn't seem that arsed because, as, you know, as long as she could just like fuck the economy, <laughs> um, she seemed to, you know, a little more live and let live in other, in other areas. And so that when we talk about kind of who's the most left wing and who's the most right wing and who's the centrist or whatever, is it? Are we kind of just using quite using these these terms too crudely, and therefore you do end up in these misunderstandings of where someone's actually coming from? Yeah, I think that's very true. But I also think there's something else, which is that if you look at the data, that these terms are becoming totally outdated because Gen Z are becoming more socially liberal about things such as LGBT rights, but they're personally making very conservative decisions about things like drug use and sex outside committed relationships and so on. And then they are very united as well on things that we used to consider liberal, like the climate. But actually, the climate isn't a liberal agenda anymore. It's a simply a major facet of modern politics, global politics. So, And that's a bit beyond political division. So everything's shifting around. I, I don't think the terms that we're used to speaking in about right, left, centrism are quite 
um, what they once were, and we need to look again at them. Well, I wonder whether one reason why why Corbyn inspired such strong emotions is because he was like he was like obviously left wing, or like the last in a way that you could grow in a way that if you'd grown up, it was like oh, this is what left wing people were like in the eighties. And like he dressed like that and he spoke like that and those were his friends values. with those people too. And yeah. it was very kind of like, it, you, you didn't have to sort of, you know, acknowledge sort of how politics had changed. He was like, no, this is definitely left wing. Whereas a lot of the people, and you get this in, I think, the sort of commentator sphere as well, where it bleeds all over the place. And there are people who swear to me that, you know, Russell Brand is left wing. <laughs> yeah. Even though he sounds a lot like, you know, Tucker Carlson on certain issues. So we are in this very confusing phase. And maybe it's actually quite refreshing whether you've got a Corbyn or a Truss and you just go, oh, I know what they are. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the thing about where how um, identities are, are moving is that there's some research that suggests that Generation Z conservatives aren't into kind of this neocon economic liberalism anymore. They're much more into kind of protectionism, nationalism and that sort of approach. So conservatism as we think of it, that trust type economic conservatism seems to be less about what the future of conservatism will be. So everything's everything's moving. Maybe we need some new terms. I don't know. Shake I, it off. I asked my daughter about if there are any Gen Z conservatives uh, school. She, she identified about two <laughs> who have a pretty rough time of it. So sure. uh, I don't have much of a kind of study. I'm sure they're out there, but it's sort of, uh, well, I've yet to meet one. We can't see them at the moment because the government are failing so badly. It's hard to know who would attach themselves to this government. Nobody. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Uh, Jerry, Truss had a very small but passionate fan base um, and lots of backers in the think tank world. Who are the Sunakites? Who are his guys? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I remember writing a piece during the leadership elections, multiple. Um, I may have written the same piece twice uh, <laughs> about uh, about the tribes and the Tory party, right? And I remember at the time separating out the Sunakites from the culture war type people, you know, and, and Boris Johnson backers and things like that. I'm not sure they're necessarily separate groups anymore. And I think basically what we're seeing is as it, strides towards the election, more and more people are, one, having to find themselves fall behind Sunak, but also finding it easier to because so many policies are being junked, right? You know, when we get a King's speech later on this year, I'll be amazed if, you know, you don't see, you know, that classic phrase, barnacles off the boat, of, of various policies that could have been a problem for Sunak with his party gone, um, you know, this isn't this isn't a kind of a scoop or anything, but I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if the conversion therapy bill takes a take is thrown overboard um, because he just doesn't seem to want to engage in in that. And I think by focusing on really kind of you know retail election issues, he'll find a lot more people becoming. Sunakites. But look, traditionally, you're talking people like Mark Harper, Yamel Strides, you're kind of more one nation conservatives um, who would have backed him. But frankly, I don't think the Tories have any choice but to be a Sunakite at the moment. Right, right, right. Because who else have they got? Because that was what was confusing back in the leadership race, like when, say, when Tom Tungenhat dropped mm. out. And it's like his people, who were the kind of remaining centrists in the Tory party, they went for Sunak. 
London sure. Trust. So it seemed as if like, oh, well, these these are kind of Sunakites, but is it just basically expediency? Yeah, I think it's complete expediency because you might have suspected that those people who backed on Tegenhart, for example, might have rode in behind Penny Morden. And some of them would have been right. But I think that, again, political realism hits and it hits hard and it hits fast. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, look, I spoke about the King's speech there. This government is going to have, what's the latest, that we're looking at about a year until a general election. That's really not much time to do anything at all. Um, I think the problem that Sunak's going to have with taking people with him within his party in the next year is going to be that he's not very good on the detail, right? So we've heard him in recent days, he speaks in averages when people want specifics. Um, and it's that stuff we were saying about, you know, starting sentences with look and guys and things like that. And I mean, there was a bloke on a radio call in that he's done who said, oh, my mortgage has gone up from uh, £1,500 to 2000 and something pounds. And he went, well, actually, the average mortgage has only gone up from £800 to £1,000. Like, great, thanks. <laughs> Maybe you should have an average mortgage. Way better. Um, and I think that's something that he's going to struggle with and where you might then mm. see kind of chinks in the armour, his own party saying, oh, I'm not sure about this guy. But again, it all comes down to the fact, like Ollie said earlier, they ain't having another leadership election. Ollie, to wrap up, I saw somebody arguing that you know, the, the the misunderstandings are really helping him. And that if it, if more people knew how socially conservative he was, for example, um, then that would be a problem in, in uh, sort of blue wall areas. So do you think he's actively, because even though obviously if you study his policy, it's not like he's not getting into this culture war stuff, mm -hmm. but is he sort of actively aware that perhaps if people if you let Rishi be Rishi and people could really understand who he was, that actually would not help. Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think possibly, you know, if we're talking your sort of home counties, uh, fairly significant remain vote, more socially liberal, yeah. your sort of Cameroon, one nation type Tories, then yeah, um, talk about Anisha maybe, or, you know, uh, Surrey, somewhere like that, then yes, Possibly, I think in other conservative seats, I think the conservative conservative membership certainly, and you know people who are on sort of the right, the right of the electoral coalition, they probably actually quite like some of the stuff he's saying. It depends how much of that soft, the softer the left side of the Tory coalition goes Lib Dem, goes Labour, yeah. or you know whoever's in second place, as we see an increase in tactical voting. But also, additionally, you know, both of the major parties, the Tories and Labour, they're forging new electoral coalitions. The political map is is changing, and in the same way that perhaps you know that that red wall is no longer red, the blue wall might also no longer be blue, and we see that redrawing of the map quite possibly sort of along demographic and also EU referendum lines. So, should Starmer be making more of this, um, or is this too uh, is this too left wing an opinion? Um, because a lot of people sort of seem to think optics-wise, there's not much to choose between them, and they're both these quite sort of bland, uh, technocratic chaps in their in their image. But there obviously are big differences on the environment, on some cultural issues. So I might think, oh well, this is a good reason, good way to say, well, this is why you should vote Labour because look at you know this guy and look at these right-wing opinions he has. Um, but then you were actually saying that perhaps. You know, Labour's thing was to was to it was almost weirdly to not emphasise the difference and go, oh no, we're pretty right wing as well, but we're just new. 
Yeah. <laughs> Without sounding like too much of an incel and quoting Sun Tzu, um, <laughs> I think... The you way know, of the sword. Yeah, exactly. You know, don't interrupt your opponent when they're making a mistake. I think it is incredibly hard for the Labour Party to win elections. And when the Conservative Party is doing as badly as it is, when you have this lead in the polls, don't fuck with it too much. Um, I know the analogy that sort of people in and around Starmer uses the the Ming vase right on the ice rink or, or whatever mm-hmm. and not wanting to drop it. Um, so I think there's a degree of caution there and, you know, not wanting to sort of start coming out swinging and, and fighting too hard on these culture war issues. But, you know, on some of these issues, there are similarities there as well. You know, we've been talking about uh, self-ID. Starmer flip-flopped on that last mm. week. You know, he's adopted that sort of more aggressive, um, a woman is an adult human female language on... The environment, if we want to talk about North Sea oil and gas, last month he said that the Labour Party would not revert any of the new licenses, the explorative licenses mm-hmm. that are granted. So, yeah, I know there are there are differences and it's it's unfair to paint them as the same, you know, uh, nationalised energy provider being one. And whilst the financial side of it has been watered down, a lot of money is going towards this sort of Green New Deal type mm. policy. And then you, Les, which, you know, <laughs> he offered Sadiq Khan the glowing endorsement of saying... Um, he had no other option, which is the sort of thing that a vet says when he's come out after putting, <laughs> putting your dog down. <laughs> so. Well, we're going to get onto this in the next bit. Is nice. uh, poor old Sadiq Khan yeah. is just like, I've got this cool idea. And someone's like, no, mate. No. No. Nice try. Now let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Ronald Reed asks, the anti-LTN, low traffic neighbourhood, ULES movement is astroturfed. How does Sunak get conned into a policy direction by minority activists, many of whom don't exist? Hannah, is Sunak being conned? I'm questioning the premise of this question. I'm questioning it too. No, it's not a con. This is what people in the Tory heartlands uh, where and, and in the Labour constituencies that could swing that um, that need to go back to Tories, they really genuinely do not like the LTNs uh, or the whole ULERS concept. Now, I don't think they f- often fully understand it. I'm, I'm not being patronising. There's not been good information about this in the press at all. I think, uh, you know, hands up, our, my industry has not been good at communicating exactly what LTNs are, what the purpose of them is, um, how successful they are when you look at the data. Um, I, I've read online that they're related to the pandemic. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, how we're all going to live, how 15-minute neighbourhoods, which amusingly started as a really technocratic local government nerd thing about how to have better neighbourhoods where everyone lives a nicer life, have become turned into this bizarre conspiracy theory about how nobody's going to be able to leave. There's going to be a fence around your home 15 minutes away, which is obviously complete nonsense. Um, And it's amusing to me to watch local government like terminology get turned into something like this. It just proves that there's, it's a deep problem there about how policy is communicated. So it's been a good case study in that. No, it's not a con. These are activists who are deeply within the Conservative Party. And frankly, it does play to Conservative ideals that people should be free to spend their money on what they want in terms of a car. They shouldn't be fined uh, in, directly for using um, their own transport, that they should have choice. That choice shouldn't be taken away from them. So... I'm not surprised at all that Sunak is in this position. It's the Starmer issue that we just touched on yeah. that is the problem. Joe, you you said that you'd been to Uxbridge, right? 
So was that he he's sort of alleging that it's it's astroturfed and of course with all this stuff there's 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 a lot of um various lobby groups and think tank involved. Did you get a feeling that there was a big you know a big grassroots rebellion against Hulas that there was something genuine there? No, and look maybe this is a unpopular opinion but people were genuinely concerned. You know, I had to do the dreaded vox popping stood on the high street, spoke to people. What I must say is that the first thing I did is I interviewed Danny Bills, who was the Labour candidate in Uxbridge. And one of the first questions I asked him is, so you, Les, Tories are going hard on it. Is it a problem? And he went, no, no, no one's talking to me about it. That's aged well. And then the first person I went out and spoke to on the street said, you, Les, is going to absolutely kill me. It's £12.50 a day. It's a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. I don't think you can deny it's a lot of money. But I completely agree with Hannah that basically it hasn't been explained or sold very well. And... I don't think it's some, you know, big ploy to kind of do it down. I think people are genuinely concerned in a time where there's a cost of living crisis. And especially in outer London, a lot of people still rely on their cars, right? So I live in zone three. I don't need a car. But if I lived out in zone five, I probably would. Um, so it's. It, I think it's that. I think what is interesting about Sunak and Starmer and their approach to ULES in particular going into a general election is... Labour did not seem prepared with a line on ULES going into Redbridge. I think it, it seemed like they were shocked that it was even coming up, which I think is pretty strategically um, naive, frankly, that, you know, you can you have to make the case, you have to make the positive case for things. And they weren't able to do that until it was too late. And I think unless they sort out their line, particularly on ULES, but then on wider environmental issues, there's a risk that you see that play out at a general election in other London constituencies. I think there's a real world where we wake up the day after a general election next year, and if they haven't sorted this out, that essentially <clears throat> the Labour have made massive gains all around the country. They've still probably got a majority, let's be honest. It's not going to cost them an election. But you look at London, and quite a few of those red seats have gone blue if they don't sort out essentially their line on it. And you can't, right, you can't have a run-up to an election with Steve Khan on one hand and... Uh, Keir Starmer on the other hand saying something completely different. Mm. So I completely agree. I don't think Sunak's been conned into it. I think he sees an opportunity. That's why he's going the, for the it. The weird thing is the, the line is so simple. Most people who think they're going to be affected won't. Yeah. So if Labour just stood up and said, the Tories are making a big meal out of this, if you think you're going to be affected, here's what you really need to yep. know. You probably aren't. That's all they need to do. Completely. It's remarkable that wasn't happening. Oh, do, you, do you think this will be something um, like an important issue over the next year? Because obviously by-elections are wildly overinterpreted. And so everybody was talking about, it was ULES mania after mm. Uxbridge. Um, but that was a very specific seat. And it was actually a very specifically kind of narrow um, result. Do you think it, it is going to be pr problematic in other, in other seats? Was Labour just kind of panicked on this? So, yeah. So um, for me, it's it's quite simple to explain the result in Uxbridge, and it's that 20,000 Brunel students were on their summer holidays when voting happened. So that right there is a ginormous Labour constituency right there. I think a lot of people, for political purposes, were making it about ULES, um, not just the Tories, by the way, people in the leader's office in Labour as well, because um, there's a proxy war going on between them and City Hall. The, the facts around ULES are half of Londoners don't own a car. Uh, the World Health Organization, I, I personally find this a little hyperbolic, but the World Health Organization has said that air pollution is more dangerous than tobacco to people in the modern age. It's interesting, uh, 
Jerry mentioned that chap, right, who said, you, Les, is killing me. Well, I'll tell you what will kill him, nitrogen dioxide, yeah, yeah. Um, which causes chronic lung health. And I think the way, the messaging around this, I understand the anger here because it's about 80% of every journey in Britain is taken in a car. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, cars are very important to people. And rightly so, you know, you should be able to drive one. But equally, if we don't ask people to pay for these things, then effectively what we're doing is subsidising their driving with our lung health. Because take for, take for example the fevered and frenzied debate around e-scooters, right? Which do not kill that many people <laughs> compared to cars. They yeah. do not kill that many people. Cars do, do it by a number of ways: air pollution, road traffic collisions, um, and we 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 behave as if it's people's God-given right to drive these things to the detriment of other people in society. I think we should design cities. That, that aren't so reliant on motor traffic that, you know, our pedestrianised have adequate public transport because that's the other half of the conversation, right? The reason why people are reliant on their cars is because if, if it was cheaper, easier and a nicer experience to get a bus or a train to the place you were going to, I bet nine people out of ten would take it instead of driving. Um, so it's I understand the anger, but, but also we, we do have to have a little bit of perspective that it's not your God-given right to drive a car. Well, Lord Frost would disagree with I'm you. Sure he, I'm cars, sure he would. <laughs> cars, he says, are synonymous with freedom and the public transport yeah, is yeah. akin to servitude. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more well, with David. They're, they're, akin to, they're um, synonymous with Thatcherism, aren't they? And her ridiculous comment that if you're driving a car at 25 or something, then you've failed in life. So, I mean, that's what's leeching through yeah. the Tory policy on it. More city talk. As we talk about rents spiralling in the UK, as the market for properties become smaller and more static, new lets are 25% more expensive than before COVID. One in three renters spend half their take-home pay on rent. Uh, London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, wants the power to freeze rents for two years, but Lisa Nandy seemed to abandon the idea of rent controls in June. Andy Burnham and the Labour left are also strongly in favour. Two groups, two, a person and a group guaranteed to win over the leadership office. <laughs> um, putting Labour squabbling aside, uh, that feels good. Uh, let's take a, a quick look at the policy itself. Uh, <laughs> Hannah, you are a housing expert. Neil Garrett, the Tory leader in the London Assembly, said recently, the problem with it, like so many other populist political ideas, is it doesn't work. Pause to reflect on a Tory denouncing populist ideas that don't work. <laughs> it restricts the supply and ultimately makes the problem worse. Everywhere it has been tried, it doesn't work. That sounds very simple, Neil. Is that true? Sadly, yes. Unfortunately. I know you probably weren't expecting that from the housing desk, but it is true. And this is one thing that I fully disagree with Andy Burnham on. Normally quite usually agree quite closely with Andy Burnham where he stands. Um, it doesn't work. It benefits sitting tenants. So if you're a sitting tenant right now, you I totally understand why, if you're listening to this, you'd think, of course we need rent control, of course we need a cap. The problem is it's at the expense of any new tenant. And this is a growing sector all the time. We're now at the point where actually I saw some fantastic new data today shared with me by Alex, in fact, uh, who'd, who'd spotted it, that um, we now have a higher percentage of um, the British population who are renters than own their home with a mortgage. That's not happened for a very long mm. time. Really interesting period of time, but if you are, but when you've got a growing sector like that, you need to make sure that there is supply. The biggest problem at the moment that we have is supply. People, landlords are leaving the market rapidly for a number of reasons. One of them is to do with the cost of mortgages at the moment. Another one is to do with the very, very important and absolutely right legislation that's coming up around improving the quality of 
private rented housing. But what you end up is, um, you know, the market shrinks, the demand increases, the worst bits of it get worse. Um, the people sitting who are sitting tenants in good properties get to hold on to it at the expense of the poorest people with the least opportunity. It, it, it's, it's a bad idea. So is it because it's been it, it's in using quite a lot of American cities. It is, yeah. I, I knew about it in New York because people said, how can Monica afford that flat in Friends? Yeah. She clearly explains in one episode that it's rent controlled and she got it somewhat semi-legally. Um, from her grandmother, so it's 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 in New York. I think it's in San Francisco. So is it just is it is this exactly what's happening in those places? Yes, to an extent. So in New York and San Francisco, which, as you say, are the best sort of known examples, they have definitely got this separation in the market where there's a two tier system. So there's basically a two tier private rented sector. Half of it is fucking awful, really, really, really bad quality, and that's where the most vulnerable people end up. And half of it's quite nice. Um, and basically occupied by middle class people. And it, the, the Monica and Friends uh, example is pretty interesting because there's also, it's been tried in Sweden. And in Sweden, there's a great example of the problem with it is that it's actually become a kind of middle class hidden market that keeps itself to itself. So when someone wants to leave their rent control property because they're going to buy or they move to the next life stage, it ends up getting passed on to someone they know, whether right. it's a child or a, uh, you know, a godchild or somebody or a friend who's, who wants to rent. And it all get, and so it gets moved around within, you know, the, those who know and those who are immigrants, those who are otherwise disenfranchised, just are not connected to those networks, have no opportunity to access those properties. So, it it actually it makes the poorest poorer and it's exploitative as well. So it's not a solution. What is a solution though is rent rise capping. And but I think both parties. I mean, I might be corrected, but definitely Labour are committed to some kind of controlling of the rise. Could you explain the difference between rent controls and cap controlling the so rising contro of the rents? Yes. So rent controls. Uh, set the price at which you can market a, a property at. Um, and, and mean that there's a ceiling. Rent rise capping means that you can let your property out for whatever you want. The market demands it. If you're a new landlord, you can put right. it out there and see what you can get. But then you can only rise it by a certain percentage each year. So you can't basically just evict a tenant and then put a 30% rise on okay. for the next tenant. So, Ollie, do you, do you, how do you feel about the what is the solution to... What is in itself, I'm talking about, Hannah's talking about the social consequences, perhaps, of, of, of rent controls, but the social consequences of rising rents are very obvious mm -hmm. in terms of forcing people out, fracturing communities, giving people these insanely long commutes or even making you know, them incapable of working certain jobs. So what, you know, if you come across that seems like uh, a better solution or, or are you actually a rent control guy? We can, we're allowed to disagree on that. I'm not a uh, rent control guy. Uh, to coin a phrase, I think it's a sticking plaster. Um, even though I absolutely hate well, that I'm phrase. in a room of Nantiites. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, wouldn't go that far. Um, if you have a supply and demand problem, the solution is not to increase demand by making it cheaper. It's to build supply. So Centre for Cities estimates that in the UK, we've had a shortfall of 4.3 million homes. So for me, that means the next government um, for every year of the next parliament should be building a million homes a year. Um, for the issues you've just touched on, mm. there is enormous social good in providing people with affordable, good quality housing, whether it's educational outcomes, um, quality of life, reduced crime. It, it costs money to build these things, but the sort of broader societal effects, the aggregate effects as well of building them properly are... Uh, absolutely enormous. And then, you know, my sort of 
my pet interest as well is kind of um, local agrarianism. So for my money, at least a million of that four and a half million should be sort of um, family-sized homes with enough land that people can agriculturally support themselves in the rest of the country. But that's a conversation for another day, I think. Um, I no, this is good. You should just send in about your emails and then we can discuss it <laughs> under a pseudonym. Because um, landlords generally are quite unpopular. Uh, Joe went to a landlord's conference at the end of last year, asked them what tenants could do to help with their bills. And it was very much like, go on fewer holidays, mm -hmm. buy, buy less coffee. Um, but obviously mortgage rates aren't shooting up. Um, so do you, I mean, how much sympathy do you have um, for landlords at the moment? I have sympathy for uh, for every human being, right? But um, <laughs> I... It's like Rishi Sunak being yeah, vague, isn't yeah, it? It's exactly. just like all of God's children, man. <laughs> okay, well, look, I'll say, I don't think all landlords are bastards. Um, some are. Some aren't. Some some are good. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny that when mortgage rates start to rise, no one starts telling them to eat fewer avocados. Um, they get political representation. They get conversations in Parliament about a mortgage bomb. What's the government going to do to intervene to protect the landlords um, when private landlords are? It's it's wealth redistribution in completely the wrong direction. It's you have an asset and you're taking from the wage class to pay for your your asset as part of. The asset class. Um, look, <sighs> uh, in Austria, they have, I think it's something like 60% of people live in public housing. I'm not against people renting. Mm -hmm. um, I just, it's part of capitalism, right? You put your capital on the line and the reason you get to make money is there's risk. And if you fall on the downside of the risk, well, you know, I guess the landlords are at the sharp end of the cap of our economic system, which the tenants have been suffering for the last few decades. I mean, this is it, though. It's part of a much bigger issue. So we, this is why rent control doesn't really work as a policy, because it's part of a system where totally unequal distribution, as you've described, and where we've got something like a 61 to, to 1 ratio between CEO pay and average worker pay. It's all rooted in that. It's much bigger than just a housing crisis. So... Mm. Um, Jerry, 87 MPs are landlords. Um, now, without you know, wanting to be too uh, conspiratorial about this, I mean, is is that enough for it to be um, affecting policy? Are some people self-interest, certain kind of sympathy with uh, with landlords rather than renters? I don't know the numbers for um, MPs who are renting. Yeah, look, I I think to be honest, I think the answer is basically no, simply because 87 MPs is not enough. You know, to be you know a majority of MPs or even a majority it's of conservatives. Less than I would have thought, right? actually. But I think the reason that it's probably seems <clears throat> like they might be overrepresented is, especially this current government, landlords are probably more likely to vote Tory. It's as, it's really as simple as that. Essentially, who shouts the loudest in society? It's a tale as old as time, right? If you've got a landlord turning up to your surgery to tell you about how difficult things are for them, it might seem like a bit of an easier problem to solve than the person whose social housing you can't sort out because it's it's kind of just a bit simpler or you might kind of relate to them more if you're a Tory MP. It's, I don't think it's necessarily because Tory MPs are landlords. It's interesting, isn't it, kind of if, if you speak on a wider level of housing, that no one really seems to be happy with the Tory housing offer at the moment. I did a feature a few weeks ago on how a lot of major house builders are withdrawing their donations from the Conservatives because they're not happy about house building. Mm. So I just don't think really anyone is very 
pleased um, to, to state the obvious. Um, so no, look, I don't really think it has a massive impact because MPs are landlords. I think it's just right. electoral. Because the flip side to that is electorally, you know, if you're if you're renting, um, you're more likely to vote Labour. Now, I've got a terrible habit, unfortunately, of, of, of naming government policies. And then it turns out those policies have been dropped. Um, <laughs> so I could be wrong about this. But Mike, Michael Gove, uh, at some point in a, in a renters reform bill, was talking about ending no-fault evictions, which, of course, is something that, um, that, that I think would have, you know, cross-party support. So is, is, is this the Gove exception? My favourite Robert Ludlum novel. Um, is, is this again just like, oh, well, there's one guy, you know, that he he is sort of doing something for the renters. So is there an offer from the Tories? Yeah, look, and I, I don't know how popular this is going to be on, on a, a podcast such as this. I think Michael Gove has his heart in the right place. But I do think that that is true on this. And I think that he's um, proposed some stuff that within the Conservative Party could be seen as pretty radical and wants to make some change. But, you know, what you say there about not knowing if something is policy, the commitment has kind of been phased in and out. I think COVID really changed the game on this. Um, and, uh, you know, Eddie Hughes and his work on homelessness has been really influential on, I think, a lot of these reforms as well. But I think the fact is that bad landlords are always going to find a way to be bad landlords. So, yeah, you might be able to get rid of no-fault evictions, but they will find another reason to, to kick people out. I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, when uh, the detail came out about the no-fault evictions, there was also something for landlords in there but that was about kind of causing a nuisance and that was quite vague. The wording was very vague about, uh, you'll know better than me, Hannah, but about how kind of exactly they could make it a fault eviction. Um, so, you know, it's kind of giving with one hand, taking with another. Can they make them give the deposit back unless you've like totally fucked it up? You know that, what? Would I think unless that would be great. Unless it looks like a, you know, looks like a crack den, they have to give you deposit back. Because I, re I remember one where it was just like, yeah, the fridge, a little smell in the fridge. I must admit, and I, 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 as someone who has rented in London for the last five years and rented for many, many years before that, I have only ever had good experiences with the deposit protection scheme. I actually think that they're quite a good, oh, good. thing. Um, but maybe that's because. I am very lucky to not kind of, you know, live in very rundown places where landlords are scam artists and things like that. Um, but essentially, I think the, there is a balancing act here. I think Gove has probably taken it further than anyone else could have in that job in this current government. Right. Look, I'm not saying the situation is perfect. But... It's all right. You've qualified your praise for Michael Gove <laughs> to avoid complaints. Um, Ollie, finally... We're talking about the kind of electoral logic here. Do, do you see it already perhaps, you know, uh, perhaps backfiring for the Tories in the sense that the sort of pesky Reds are being forced out of the city and that it is turning some of those suburban seats more Labour that, you know, that you, if you change, if you change the demographics, you change, you change the vote. Yeah. That's certainly happening. I think you're seeing that in those sort of the home counties, um, the constituencies that we, men we mentioned earlier, some of the local local uh, council elections. Uh, you start to see signs of that, but again, tactical voting's folded into it, so it's, mm -hmm. it's you can't overanalyze it. Look, home ownership is an incredibly powerful political force. Um, ask Mar wait, I was say ask Margaret Thatcher, um, but yeah, um, you know there are. It's a it's a it's a it's a way to to win votes. It's a way to 
be popular. People people want secure housing, and if you provide provide it to them, they will vote for you. So you know, um, if you want to be a complete cynic about it, yeah. If 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 either of the parties adopted a radical house building program, I think they'd they'd feel the benefit of a lot of electoral success as a result. As a result. It would be fun if you did the right thing that actually helped people and it was electorally beneficial. Yeah. That seems really good. Yeah, 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 for sure. We've reached the end of the show. Uh, So we'll quickly talk about the stories that have gone under the radar this week. Hannah. So this is some interesting data from Dementia UK, which kind of got, it was reported by The Guardian, but it did get a bit um, buried by the big BBC investigation into uh, the social care crisis this week, which basically shows that calls to their helpline from people who are caring for relatives, friends with uh, dementia, particularly Alzheimer's, um, where they're reporting being in, in immediate danger, physical danger from the person they're caring for, have doubled in in 2022 there's now more than three calls a week where the person is basically at risk of physical harm um and i mean that's just so heartbreaking and there are now 700,000 people who are being looked after by their relatives or close friends with dementia and it's a huge issue and i think this this kind of risk of physical threat is is a really underconsidered area mm. of the care crisis um yeah i mean it's such a hard job such hard work and often work that's done by women and families who are taking on that care role in, in, in their mid to later life if they're supporting a much older parent or relative. And uh, I think we, we don't do enough to support those people. And the, the fact that they have physical risk is just a great example of that. Uh, Jerry. Yeah, if you'll allow me to be, to be a bit like introspective on this um, and in, indulge me a bit in a bit of journalism chat, there's a story that I think has got under the radar. Um, it's about a group called NewsQuest, which listeners will have no idea who they are, but they own a lot of local newspapers around the country. It's a kind of this issue close to my heart. Hmm. The NUJ, the National Union Journalists uncovered this week that NewsQuest appear to be basically retaining, they get money for the, a post that's called a BBC local reporter, a local democracy reporter job. Essentially, it's the BBC funding local democracy reporters uh, for local papers in a bid to make up for the fact that the BBC essentially dominates the industry, right? They pay for them, but they work for the local papers. NewsQuest appears to be retaining per post around £10,000 of the funding they get from the BBC and only passing on the minimum amount they need to to these local democracy reporters. I think it's a really, really important story because essentially it's taxpayers' money, right? The BBC is funded by all of us um, and it's supposed to go towards people being able to effectively report on local councils, what your councillors are doing and holding them to account. And I think it's just shoddy practice. This is under the radar because NewsQuest is not reporting it. Well, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ollie? Uh, We spoke a little bit about Labour Party rent controls, etc. But there was a really good piece in the eye uh, this week about the sort of internecine warfare between the Metro mayors and Keir Starmer and the leader's office, including a quote. There was a quote in this piece that just blew my mind, which was that Labour's leadership is absolutely furious with Sadiq Khan about free school meals. I think there's been, uh, from a a Labour insider, I think there's been a chronic lack of reporting broadly about the sort of the factionalism um, and the centralisation of power within the Labour Party. And I think it's a story that's going to grow and grow because Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan aren't going to go away. And equally, um, the proclivity of Keir Starmer's leader's office is to is to centralise power and he does not like those rival power bases. 
I did a, a piece on on mayors a year ago for the Guardian, and and, and spoke to a bunch of them, and the, the the potential, what they wanted to do, and obviously, there's you know, people do like having power, but it it was quite sort of inspiring the possibilities, the idea of experimenting with it, working. They all talked about working with um, the central leadership, and um, and I was really struck by. I haven't read the piece you you mentioned, but I was really struck by how often they were just like smacking down people who you know. Mm -hmm. We're trying out a lot of interesting policies. Do you have, uh, you know, some uh, personal popularity? It just seemed like they were like, no, thank you. This is the question, right? Because you know, Labour, Labour is the party of devolution, you know, right. and let's not, we can't ignore the sort of the Blairite tendencies of the the current iteration of the Labour Party. It'll be very interesting if Starmer's iteration of it does not pursue devolution in the same way that Tony Blair's did. Uh, I've just got a really quick one. There's a great um, sort of political analyst, for freelance political analyst called Steve Akehurst on Twitter, who um, just took up some really interesting stats on what policies people like and which ones they're willing to pay for, based on the um, the fact that obviously a very easy argument against net zero is like, well, people would like uh, not to have a climate crisis, but they don't want to pay for it. <laughs> and then he found data that basically people don't want to pay for anything except the NHS. They don't want to make any personal sacrifice. And when it was like, would you like better schools? They go, yes. Would you make any financial sacrifice for better schools? No, God, no. And that this was the same on basically, like I said, everything except healthcare. And so that this was a really uh, dishonest argument against um, green policies. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Hannah. Thank you. Jerry. Thank you. And Ollie. Cheers. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And the traditional thank you to our generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. Hello, and a big shout out to new supporters Oliver Vincent Ball, James, and Raffo Bonacorsi. And thank you to some of our old school supporters who have returned to the fold. Welcome back to Neil Henderson, Katie Johnson, and Mark Housen. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Hannah Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. We're just a month away from party conference season and possibly less than a year from the next general election. It's going to mean a smorgasbord of rosettes, T-shirts and novelty teapots. Um, so begin with the amnesty. Does anyone here own political merch? I will start. I think I have mugs and T-shirts from this podcast, which I think just counts as stuff from work. And I do have a dump Trump fridge magnet from 2016, which didn't work. It works. It sticks to the fridge but it did not thwart the presidency of Donald Trump. <laughs> I got um, some stuff like that as well from the 2020 election when I was over there covering it. Um, a very kind man from a hard right Jewish militia gave me a Trump train 2020 flag, um, <laughs> wow. which was very kind of him. Um, another man also from an extreme right wing militia gave me some bullet casings uh, whilst he was, after he'd <laughs> shown me uh, him and his mates doing drills in the woods. Um, 
and I got myself a what? It's not well. It reminds me of politics, but it's a Waffle House mug. You know, there's like a chain. So I don't know if you've been to Waffle House. Yeah, um, I like Waffle House because of the Waffle House Index, which is one of the metrics by which they measure hurricanes in the states. Because Waffle House is twenty four seven, three six five. They never shut. There's an urban legend that they don't have keys for the for the stores, right? So a way of measuring the severity of a hurricane is how many Waffle Houses have been closed by the, <laughs> by, by the hurricane. Um, so I've got a Waffle House mug as well. And that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a bit more, oh God, what an hour every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favor and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, oh God, what else, every Monday morning, and some merchandise, which is much better than Keir Starmer flip-flops. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>